I've got a little more room to spread out my notes here this morning. That's good. We have, uh, we have fun in our household. My kids always want to know, what, what's Daddy p- preaching on this Sunday? And so for those of you that have been here for a while, uh, you know that uh, a couple months back we did a four-part series in the Prodigal Son, four weeks in a row, and it drove Caleb crazy because he would ask me, Dad, what are you preaching on this week? And I'd say, the Prodigal Son. Dad, didn't you preach on that last week? So the third week would roll around. Dad, what are you preaching on this week? The prodigal son. Ugh, again. And you, you, we laugh at it with kids. And uh, honestly, the reason I tell that story, I've told it before, is when you come to the Good Samaritan, we've heard that. What are we going to hear this morning that is new. I checked my old Bibles, and what it says in the old Bibles is the exact same thing it says in my new Bible. The word hasn't changed. There's no new information. But I think as we look at this story, as we continue our current series examining Northside's favorite Bible stories, something would be wrong if the Good Samaritan didn't make the cut. And I think the lesson here this morning for a church that is seeking to be God's church, that is seeking to be faithful to Him, is a li- little, bit of a, little bit of a test. A L- little bit of a self-inventory. There's something about human nature that we all think we're doing much better than we're actually doing. Because we, we, we go through life just assuming, you know, I haven't killed anybody this week. Like, that's the standard for, like, being a bad person. I haven't haven't killed anybody this week. I've thought about it, but I haven't done it. Scott Crouch, wherever he is. And the truth is, when we stop and we allow God's Word to have its effect, searching out all the nooks and crannies of our heart, the depths of our soul, when, when we allow this to be the standard by which we evaluate ourselves... There's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is, you aren't nearly, I'm not nearly as good as I think I am. The good news is, we're all in the same boat. None of us is as good as we think we are. There is this insidious nature that we have that we can always find someone to compare ourselves to that we're doing better than. The problem is, it's not a competition We are called, as Christians, to emulate, to model the very character of Christ, certainly in our compassion. And I think sometimes our definition of compassion is fairly lukewarm. It's fairly tepid. And so this morning, as we look at this beloved Bible passage, I think we'll see one kind of timeless truth but two very important principles for how we live out the story of the Good Samaritan. And our first point, the, 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 the truth is this. Your testings, your trials, will always come at the most unexpected time. You're not in grade school anymore, but you remember pop quizzes. Uh, you know what? You don't have to be in grade school to remember what a pop quiz is. Um, anybody drive this week? 
And as you're driving along, you happen to see a black and white marked vehicle. And the very first thing you do is look at your speedometer to go, all right, how am I doing? Is my seatbelt buckled? It's a pop quiz of sorts. Am Am I swerving? Am I in the right lane? Have I signaled correctly? And then if he pulls behind you, oh my goodness, what have I done? What did I do? He's just driving somewhere. He's not pulling you over. But we start to go, oh my goodness, what is happening? So we understand a little bit about pop quizzes. Well, testings are kind of like that. If there's anything true about human experience, it's that you can know that you have either come out of a testing or you're going into one, but yet when it happens, what's our reaction? Oh my goodness, chicken little, the sky is falling. Why is it when in our calmer moments, we know that testing is coming? And yet we happen to be so surprised by it. Well, here's the good thing. Jesus gives us an example of how to deal with that. He's prepared beforehand to deal with this. We see this in the life of Jesus, that he is tested at an unexpected time. And, And to begin our look at the Good Samaritan story, it's important for us to get the context. And so if you look at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, Uh, we see a very important thing that has happened. Jesus is in the middle of a ministry party. Jesus is just in the middle of celebrating good things. He has just taken 70 of his disciples, and he has given them instruction, and he has sent them out on a preaching and mercy ministry all throughout these towns that he himself is going to travel to. They are his advanced prep team that are going in and finding households of peace and finding bases of operation for Jesus to come in and and begin his preaching ministry. Cities that Jesus had not visited previously, but that he was making preparation for. Well, in verse 17 it says, The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They had been obedient. They had gone out and done exactly what Jesus had asked them to do. And it was mission accomplished. This is great. This is awesome. Everything that Jesus told us to do, we have done and we have completed it and we have been successful. Well, in the midst of that, Jesus says something rather startling. He says, don't be so impressed with the things that you have accomplished. Be more impressed with what God has accomplished for you. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Your accomplishments will never be greater than what Jesus has accomplished for you already. And he's telling the disciples, hey, guys, good job. boy! I'm really proud of you. But it's not your power. It's God's power. And there's something even better than casting a demon out. It's knowing that your sins are forgiven. And that God has called and equipped you to be an ambassador for him in a lost and dying world. And so in the midst of this, it says that a scribe, a lawyer, stood up to ask Jesus a question. And you see that in verse 25. Jesus is celebrating these victories with his disciples, teaching them and encouraging them. And in verse 25, it says, A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we think we know what a test is. 
But in the Bible, this word for test, the Greek word that is there, is used 36 times in the New Testament. And the first time it's ever used in the life of Jesus, it is Satan coming to him to test him. This is not a good word. This is not a lawyer trying to check out Jesus' street cred. Hey, can he give the right answer? This is diabolical. He's, he's trying to embarrass Jesus in front of his followers. He's trying to discredit Jesus. And so when we remember what the Bible says his motives are, that his motives are to test him. His, his motives are very far from honorable. This is not a simple question. And this word test is used most specifically of Jesus' opposition from Satan and from other religious leaders that just didn't quite like what he was saying. So one of the things that I think is helpful for us is we talk about this first truth, that your testing will come at an unexpected time. It's this. Jesus was tested. Jesus was tempted. He was tried. And that means when you go through it, the temptation is think, Nothing this bad has ever happened to anyone else in the history of humanity. Woe is me. Jesus was tempted. And he honored God through that. And he offers that same power to you. He he offers his fellowship. The Bible tells us clearly in the book of Hebrews that Jesus, by being tempted, provides a faithful model for us to know that we don't have to give in to it. We don't have to fail the test, and that Jesus will be with us through this. Well, if that's the truth, what are the principles? The lawyer has asked a very pregnant question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The question's a good question. It's the motives that are questionable. And Jesus basically turns the question around on him. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And what we're seeing here is uh, this, this principle, this second point, that we, we, you, must avoid the temptation to grade yourself on a curve. Again, we can always find somebody that we can compare ourselves favorably to. And as we'll see as this story continues to unfold, that's exactly what's happening. The lawyer has asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers how? With a counter question. He says, you're not going to trap me. He goes, let's, let's, let's take this from the realm of a cerebral, abstract, theological debate. And let's make it real practical and personal. What do you think the Bible says? Puts the guy on the hot seat. Now, he's a lawyer. He should be ready for this. And so he responds. In verse 27, he says, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Basically, in providing this answer, the lawyer is quoting two very uh, famous Old Testament passages uh, from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. The Deuteronomy passage talks about explicitly uh, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The one in Leviticus, Leviticus 18 I'm sorry, Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The Old Testament required that you love your neighbor. That's not a New Testament concept. 
the New Testament expands and clarifies it. But love for neighbor was an Old Testament concept. And so he gives the Sunday school answer or the Sabbath school answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say? How does the dialogue continue? Well, basically in verse 28, Jesus says, yep, good answer. Do this and you will have eternal life. He says, you, you, you got it. This is what you need to do to have eternal life. Now, Jesus is not giving some dispensationally limited comment that just applied to people alive when he was alive. He was asserting that if you love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly, what have you done? You have fulfilled the law. You've done it. And so I think sometimes we get kind of ruffled at Jesus going, wow, uh, he didn't talk about grace He didn't talk about forgiveness. He gives the guy a works answer. Do this and live. Before we get ruffled, we've got to realize this. Did you notice how it says we're supposed to love God? With all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. It's comprehensive for all statements, saying our love for God should be supreme. How are we to love our neighbor? This is interesting. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Why doesn't he say, love your neighbor the same way you love God? Well, I think he's giving us a very practical object lesson. He's saying, our love for neighbor must not be less in extent nor inferior in quality to the love that we have for ourselves. You know, have you ever had, um, you've had this experience. You have people come over for dinner. And if they're fancy people, you get out your fancy plates. If it's a barbecue, it's stuff that you can throw away. Styrofoam, paper plates. He's saying, don't, don't keep the fine china for yourself and give, give the paper plates to your neighbor. Your love for your neighbor must be as wide as your love and concern for yourself. And the depth of its quality must be equivalent to the way that you love yourself. If you're driving home and you're hot and you stop to get a soda to please your needs. When you see someone who's struggling in the heat of the day, be sure to offer them a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. If you have needs, they have needs. And he's saying, this is how it's supposed to work. So Jesus is not indeed giving a works answer. He's not saying, it is possible for you, young man, to love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly and get eternal life. He's trying to bring this guy to the very end of himself Because he's given him an impossible, an impossible solution. The point is to draw the law expert to repent and admit how woefully short he falls of fulfilling God's law. But because he is this religious expert, repentance and admitting that he is wrong is the very last thing that he is capable of. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. And so instead, what does this man that's asked the question do? He tries to find a way to say, hey, Jesus, listen, yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page here. You know, that love your God, love your neighbor thing, I got it. The problem is, you know, the scripture's really unclear about who my neighbor is. The problem's not me. The problem's the the Bible. The problem's the Old Testament. You you, you know, you could have been a little clearer about that, God. You know, kind of had a little parentheses that said, who my neighbor is, because I don't know. If I knew, I would do it. I'd knock it out of the park, Jesus. I'd I'd get it done. 
I'd organize a team. We'd be neighbor lovers. We, we've got it. Look at verse 29. Important clue. Wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, this is a pretty smart guy. He's a lawyer after all. He's, he's, been, he's been to law school. And he knew he was damned by the law that he had quoted. He had not loved God perfectly. and He had not loved his neighbor as himself. And so in order to justify himself, he had to find a way to limit the extent of the law to make himself look bigger. If the law's up here and I can never reach it, I don't look so good. If I can take my axe and chop that down, get down to about four feet, I'm looking good. And so he's, he's trying to find a way to lessen his obligation to actually do what the Bible said by watering it down to something that he can now justify himself and go, well, I'm two feet above the standard. I, I've got it. And so the problem here at its basis level is the problem is not an unclear law. What's the problem? The problem is self-defined Boundaries for our love. God, I know you say I'm supposed to love like that. I can do this. Don't, don't tell me to do that. Let, let, me, let me do something that I can actually accomplish. And guys, we have to admit, when he says to love your neighbor as yourself, how many of you go, yeah, I've, I've really done good at that this week. Try it with your spouse for five days. Love your spouse as yourself. That's a tough enough challenge let alone everybody else, good grief. And it is only by the grace of God that we can be the kind of people that we need. And I think it's interesting at this point, who's listening to this whole conversation? You remember? It's the lawyer and Jesus. They're in, engaged in this toe-to-toe battle. But who, where, where's this happening? Among the little disciple ministry party, okay? And what have the disciples just done? They come back, like, yeah, Jesus, we're awesome. We're like the best disciples ever. We're casting out demons. We're being obedient. What did Jesus have to tell them? Don't rejoice in your accomplishments. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. He's reminding even his disciples in the way that he handles this conversation that it is really not about you. You have an opportunity to be the channel through which God's love, compassion, and blessings flow. And if it is all about you, then you're not one of the disciples in the passage. You're the lawyer who's trying to find a way to justify himself. Look how good I am. Not good. And so if we're not supposed to grade ourselves on the curve, what are we supposed to do? Third and final point. We are supposed to test ourselves so that we can see the limits that we place on our compassion. Every single one of you, I mean, listen, you're already going, well, uh, yeah, that guy over there on that pew, yeah, he, he's a real jerk. He doesn't love anybody. He's, he's hard to love. I'm not like that. Every person in this room places some boundary on their love, Okay? I'll help, I'll help somebody who looks like me, but the homeless guy standing at the exit off the interstate, mm-mm-mm, not going to help him. The migrant worker, hey, he's here illegally. What, what should, why should we help them? 
They need help themselves. I don't know what your situation is. If it's an issue related to something in the culture wars that you go, nope, not going to help them. That's immoral. Jesus doesn't say, just help people that look nice, that obey to the same standard that you do. So every single one of us puts some kind of limit on our compassion. The question is, do you even know what it is? Is it ethnic? Is it racial? Is it socioeconomic? Is it political? Is it cultural? Is it theological? I don't know. There's too many people in this room for me to try to guess at that. But I can tell you this. You put a limit on your compassion. And so to answer this, Jesus tells the story that we know as the story of the Good Samaritan. So there's a lot of great details. This is a fictional account, okay? Jesus is telling a parable. There was no literal Good Samaritan. Okay, now the road is a real place. He's referring to something, but there was not a man. I'm sure somewhere there was a man that got beat up on a road. But Jesus is telling a story. He's a preacher after all. And so he's, he's, he's getting it done. And you know the details of the story. There is a Jewish man who is traveling, and he gets beaten up by robbers and left for dead. Not really the best of days for this guy. He's definitely, listen, I don't know much about him, but he's, he's seen better days than this. Uh, he's not in a good situation. And so the good news is, <clears throat> uh, he doesn't lie there very long. Because some of the religious leaders that he looks up to so well happen to be coming along the same path. This guy is rescued. That's the story, isn't it? Not quite. Listen to verses 30 through 33. Jesus replied to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? And he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers and they stripped him and they beat him. And they went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. If you were this man, left beaten up, stripped of your dignity and your clothes, all of your material possessions that you have on you ripped from you. Groaning, perhaps looking out of one eye swollen shut and barely being able to see another one. And you hear the footsteps coming down the path. Wouldn't your heart beat a little faster to know that you know, you're exposed to the sun, you're injured, you can't do anything to help yourself. And here comes another human being. It's a priest? Thank God for sending him. Doesn't happen. And the truth is, we try to find ways to get these religious leaders off the hook. We try to say, well, you know, they're priests and they're Levites. They're important people. They got places to go and people to see. And maybe, maybe, maybe the priest is on his way to the temple to serve. It's his annual rotation. And he knows that if he touches a dead body, per- perhaps that's going to defile him and he's not going to be able to serve in the temple. Listen, that's, that's great hermeneutical gymnastics. But the truth is, what it's saying here is the priest is going down to Jericho. He's not going up to the temple. He's on his way home. He's done with his service in the temple. Same with the Levite. He's not concerned about ceremonial cleanliness. He's concerned about making it home in time for supper. 
my, my biggest fear for the American church. And younger people, listen, this is probably more of an issue for you. Maybe even narrow it a little more. Parents, that doesn't mean the rest of you need to tune out because you deal with the same issue. Life is busy. YMCA, soccer, softball, cheerleading, swim lessons, school, homework, making lunch, cleaning the house, having people over. Are you so busy that you become a priest or a Levite in this story? Listen, the wife is expecting me home. I, I would love to help. I don't have any cash on me. It's easy to come up with excuses. And listen, this is not an endorsement for us to be foolish. Um, don't be stupid in your compassion. Don't put yourself into peril. But the Bible's saying very clearly, we have got to be compassionate. The question I have here is, why in the world would this man avoid helping a fellow Jew? The Old Testament is clear that they should be concerned for the stranger. The Old Testament says, when a stranger lives among you, a foreigner, you take care of him. The Bible even says, if you see your enemy's donkey or cow kind of wandering away, you're not to go, sweet, one less cow, not a pig, but cow, sheep, whatever for my neighbor. It says, no, you're to stop what you're doing. You can go get them and take them back to your enemy. You're supposed to love your enemy. So if the Bible requires love for the stranger, the foreigner among you, love for your enemy, certainly you're supposed to love a fellow Jew. Perhaps they had even worshipped together. And the truth is that performing your religious obligations on your day of worship is a heck of a lot easier than actually living it out when you're on the road. Listen, if we graded ourselves based on looking good on Sunday morning, we'd all get an A, wouldn't we? Man, but the truth is you can go buy the most expensive suit and have the filthiest heart in this room and not listen to a thing that God is saying to you. We, we don't evaluate ourselves the way that God evaluates ourselves. And so, listen, they're passing by. They have found excuses to say, we're not going to help this guy. And so you have a priest, kind of the, 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 the big dog in the temple, the Levite, He's kind of the associate priest, the helper. <clears throat> and then a third man comes. And you would think that kind of following the outline of the story, that if a priest come, Jewish priest comes, <clears throat> a Jewish Levite comes, that the third person coming would be who? Just a regular Jewish guy. Joe. Joe the Jew. He's coming by. You got the, you got the priest. You got the Levite. Now you've got just a Jewish layperson. And that's where the story kind of turns on its head because that's not what happens. Now it is a Samaritan coming. And this wounded man's opinion, his condition has just gone from bad to worster. I don't want this guy even touching me. I think I would prefer to bake in the sun naked. I'll just roll over on my other side. Then have a Samaritan, half-breed, redneck traitor help me. Who, who would the good Samaritan be in our day? Would it be an Arab person? Would it be a homeless person? Would it be a flamboyant homosexual? Would it be a migrant worker? 
Who's the person that you go, I'm in trouble, but I don't want them to help me? That's who the Good Samaritan is. I don't know how to contextualize it to you, but he's going, oh my goodness, anybody but him, not him. And so as we read 33 through 35, we'll see that the people who had the right theology were the ones that were not good for a nickel. And this person who is an outcast is the one who actually has compassion. Verse 33, but a Samaritan who was on a journey. What's he journeying for? Maybe he's a businessman. He's got places to go, people to see too. He's on a journey. Comes upon this man. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Did you notice the string of verbs used to describe this man? We don't have a whole lot of information about who the Good Samaritan is. We don't know his name. We don't know where he's from. We don't know where he's going. We don't know what he's doing, but we know what he did. It says he came to him and bandaged him. Everybody else kind of stepped over him and won on their merry business. But he stopped what he was doing. He came to him, and he bandaged him. It says that he poured oil and wine on his wounds. Now, um, if you've been to the emergency room, you're not going to get oil and wine poured on you today. This was a way that they would disinfect an, an antiseptic to clean out the man's wounds. It cost him something. That was his oil and his wine for his journey. And he took of his own resources and sacrificed for this man in need. Not only did he come to him and bandage him and pour and treat his wounds, but he put him on his beast and he brought him to town. You ever wondered what that looked like? I mean, the the man was so incapacitated that he couldn't walk. Naked. Um, Assuming the Good Samaritan wrapped something around him. What would it look like having a half-dead, naked man on your donkey walking behind you? You think you got some stairs? The truth is, if you're going to be compassionate, you're going to get some strange looks. Because you're going to have to do some stuff that is kind of odd sometimes. Maybe a little bit uncomfortable. And here's the thing that I think is cool. When he got to the town, whoever this Samaritan man was, he didn't assume his responsibilities were over when he got to the end. He didn't say, all right, buddy, dropping you off. Good luck. See you next time. He didn't do that. It says that he took his own money, two denarii, which is basically two days' wages. The denarius was a day's wages. So he took two days of his wages and gave it to the innkeeper and said, you take care of him, and if this doesn't cover it, I'll be coming back through when my journey is over, and I will take care of whatever else needs to happen. So Jesus finishes the story about the good Samaritan, and he asks the lawyer a question. Has Jesus actually directly answered the guy's question at all? He told a story, asked a counter question, and now he asks another question. Here's the moral of the story. Be very careful asking Jesus a story because he's going to ask you two questions for every one you ask him, and they're not going to be easy to answer. Verse 36, Mr. Lawyer Man, Mr. Smart Guy, which of these three do you think proved 
to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. I love this. See what Jesus did? What was the lawyer's question? Who is my neighbor? A passive noun. Who is my neighbor? Person, place, or thing. What did Jesus do with the lawyer's question? He didn't repeat it back to him. He changed it from a passive noun to an active verb. Who among these three proved to be neighborly? See, the question is never really, who is my neighbor? The question is, what kind of neighbor am I? I love the story of one of the most prominent Indian evangelists in the early 1900s named Sadhu Sundar. He uh, was a very young believer, but he knew that Jesus expected him to preach the gospel among the Indian people. There were not many Indian believers. And so he was traveling to a Buddhist monastery to preach the gospel, way high up in the Himalayas. And, uh, you know, very shoddy sandals, um, wind blowing, snow drifts. And as he's traveling up this path to this Buddhist monastery, he runs into a Buddhist monk who also happens to be traveling to this same monastery. Well, they're freezing. Um, It's the middle of the day, and the temperature's just going to drop as they continue on. And as they're going up this mountain path, they hear very faintly over the howling of the wind a a man who has fallen down the side of this cliff and is down but accessible. He could climb back up, but he's got a broken leg from the fall. Well, the Buddhist monk says, obviously this man has done something wrong, and God, the gods are getting him. Let's go on because we'll be in danger ourselves if we don't make it to the monastery. Sadhu Sundar said, I don't think it's that God has brought this man to this point. Perhaps it's that God has brought me to this point for that man. Two ways of looking at the very same thing. And he goes down and he Rescues the man, carries him on his back the last torturous miles through adverse circumstance to this monastery and saves this man. So when you see someone in need, do you go, ha ha, getting what you deserve? Or do you go, hmm, I wonder why God has brought me at an intersection where I cross with this person. Perhaps it's for me to show the compassion of Christ. And so, friends, this, this brings us to reflect. What would you have done if you happened upon the beat-up man? Ain't got time for this. Or, you know what? My other obligations can wait. I think there's a couple things to just ask here rhetorically. And allow the Spirit to apply to your life. Does your love cost you anything? Or are you one of these people, if you can't be with the ones you love, just love the ones you're with? Is your love, is it costly? Or is it simply convenience-based? Are you a good steward of what God has given you when it comes to neighbor love? What did it cost the good Samaritan? Certainly his time. Certainly his oil and his wine. Certainly his money. 
probably other things we can add to that. What are you doing? What is it costing you to be a loving ambassador for our Lord? Sometimes the ministry of hospitality can reap great rewards. One of the greatest memories that I have from my childhood... um, My house always had open doors. I didn't have to hide my friends or my girlfriends, sorry, Marcy, from my parents. As a matter of fact, if I, if I was dating a young lady, I hated this, but I learned from it. One of the very first things my dad would ask when he met this young lady that I was going out with for the night was, so tell me your testimony. How did you become a Christian? Needless to say, I had a lot of first dates. (laughs) But one of the things that was great is because of my parents' hospitality, my home was my friend's home. And it's one of those strange things. I don't know that this is one of those things that later in life you kind of reflect back on it and you go, huh, wasn't that strange? All of my best friends from school had no idea who their dad was. They may have known a name, but their dads were not involved in their life. And the thing that was a testimony to my friends was my dad's care and involvement in my life. And you know what happened? Because my, my mom, she, she'll cook at the drop of a hat. She, she, she's good. And uh, I don't know that she ever complained about my friends coming over at dinner time. You know, I don't know that she ever, I don't know that it bothered her to be generous with our pantry. But the truth is, all of my friends from the public school that I went to became believers. Yes, I had to share the words of the gospel with them but they became believers because my family was hospitable. It made them feel comfortable. They, they were good stewards. They, were, they, were, they would allow their love to cost them something. Food, convenience, comfort, teenagers tearing up the house. The, the, the question is this, what does your love cost you? Second question is this, how have you proven your love? If being a neighbor is not a noun but a verb, Jesus asked the question, who has proven their love? You see, neighborliness is always demonstrated in action. You are not a neighbor just because you live next door to someone. If you don't know their name, what kind of neighbor are you? If you don't know their circumstances, there should be a blessing when a Christian lives next door to anyone. And so how are you fulfilling where God has placed you to be an outpost for his gospel. Are you others-focused or are you self-focused? Are you one of these people that's more concerned about qualifying or accessing, assessing others to see if they're worthy of your love? Or are you more concerned with whether you are a loving person? We think that love is limited by the object. Well, you know, if he just, was, if he just would receive it, I would give it. It's not true. Love is never defined by the object. Love is, ne- is, is always limited in its extent and quality by the giver. You can give love and it not be received. 
And that doesn't have to impede your giving of love at all. The truth is, when we talk about others, there are to be no artificial distinctions made in our treatment of people. No matter what zip code they live in, no matter what kind of job they do or do not have, no matter their shade of skin, the Bible says we are to be neighborly to all people. And that happens when this happens. Your heart, is it simply an organ that pumps blood? Or is it something that sees all of the needs around you? It's not enough for a Christian to simply have a blood-pumping organ. We must have a heart that sees and feels and acts when it sees the needs around us. Lastly, most importantly, is your compassion an end in itself, or is it a reflection of your love for Jesus? It can be both. It can be one or the other. It can be all about you and what you've done. Or as we sang in the Compassion Hymn, each day we live an offering of praise as we show to the world your compassion. It's not like you worship God, love God, and sometimes love neighbors. It's not multiple choice. Um, you don't get to say, I really like the love God stuff. That's kind of mushy-gushy. I like it. Ooh, loving your neighbors, I might get dirty. I might deal with people that I don't know how to, it'll be a little awkward. I don't know how to act around. Who cares? It's not one or the other. It's both. Loving God and loving neighbor, not one or the other. And I think today there are two targets for this message. For those of you here in the church, and listen, there's a good number of you, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for you. If you happen to be one of those super servants, you know who they are? People do everything at the church. Our church would not function without these people because they're on every committee. They show up every time the doors are open. They are a blessing to be around. But it's not by mistake if you read the next story right after the Good Samaritan. It's the story of Mary and Martha. Remember the story? One of them is so busy getting dinner ready, and Mary is seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. And Martha gets so bothered because she's serving. She's being a good Samaritan. I'm getting a fancy dinner ready for Jesus and his disciples. And she goes to Jesus and says, Mary's not helping in the kitchen. Jesus says, Martha, Martha. No, Martha, Martha. Martha. Maybe you could have just done peanut butter and jelly. We don't need an elaborate meal. But Mary has chosen the better thing. And so for those of us who are super busy, sometimes, I, listen, I get there too. I sit in there and go, man, i got to do another thing at the church. we got 300 people here. If some of these people would do something, it would be a little bit easier. We could share the load. You can't do that. You can't say that. Because what you have just done is invalidated your service. It's not an offering to Jesus. It is a resume. And so to the super busy I think this idea of allowing our compassion and our service to be a reflection of our love for Jesus means that we do the right thing with the right attitude. The problem is not getting tired. The problem is focusing so much on our action that we forget and we complain and we forget that we're serving Christ. But there's a second group of people 
beyond the super servant, and I call these the unengaged. doesn't mean you're not married. It just means for whatever reason, you're not involved in serving. You're not involved specifically in being a good Samaritan. And I think the great danger for American Christianity is not that we're ever going to renounce our faith, not that we're going to turn over on our doctrinal statement. It's this, that we're going to get so distracted, we're going to be so rushed, we're going to be so preoccupied that we settle for a drive-by Christianity. What's the littlest I can get by with? Services, hour and 15 minutes? Hmm, wonder if I could find a church that's got a 45-minute service. How about a half hour? Maybe I won't even go at all on Sunday. I can DVR one at home, watch it in 15 minutes and fast forward. Drive-by Christianity. We pile on appointments. We pile on lessons, practices, games, performances, committees, shovel in fast food, do church. And we're so high-speed, fast-paced, and goal-oriented that we forget what the entire message is about. Loving God and loving people. So this passage reminds us that we do have to test ourselves. Loving God and serving others is key. Let me say this, just two ways that I think we can bring this home very practically. There's a way that we can all help. There's a way we can all help. If you're looking for a very practical way that you can be a good Samaritan, um, you're not going to get dirty doing this, but it's a way you can help. If you look at your bulletin, you look at your worship outline, at the very bottom of the worship outline, there's a note in fine print. Note, offerings of loose change or bills go to the less fortunate in our community. Now, most of you, you know, write a check. A lot of you give online. Um, there's all kinds of things like that that happens. If you put unmarked money, anonymous money in the plate, we have a team that has a horrible name. It's called the Crisis Team, Crisis Committee. Um, I, don't, I, I hope I never need help from the Crisis Committee. Um, I know a crisis will come, but good golly, let's call them something else. Like, we'll help you team or something like that. The point is, you know, we get about $3.50 a week in loose change that goes to help people. Now, the entire staff abandoned me this week. Everyone was on vacation. I was in the office all by myself. Uh, There were four calls from the community of people needing help. My power's going to get shut off if I don't pay, if I don't get somebody to pay $25. I got no food for my kids. My husband just left me, moved to Florida. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm looking for a job. I don't have a place to live. I'm in desperate need. That's not even people in our own church. Those were three or four phone calls that we got this week from our community. And um, if I can be a little tongue-in-cheek, $3.50 a week and can cut it. We'll buy you a Happy Meal. We're not going to help you. So one of the things that we've talked about with our (laughs) crisis team is kind of re-examining their charter, what they're supposed to do. They've been in existence for a long time but they, they have basically been a hidden committee here at this church. What we're saying is we're trying to find ways to do more to help our church members and to bless ministries and people in our community. And so if you are stirred by a message like this and go, yeah, I want to help people, just remember that every Sunday that you come to church, it doesn't just need to be loose change. You can designate a portion of your giving to our crisis team, and that money will be well spent. 
We have godly, wise people there that sit down on a case-by-case basis with every person to determine if and in what amount we're going to help. If you're not helping yourself, if you're making really bad decisions, our help may not be financial. It may be counseling. It may be sitting down and teaching you that you can do without the cigarettes and you can do without the cable TV and you can do without the fancy, shiny new car. Let's eliminate debt and maybe you have enough money to survive now. And so a very easy way is we have a process in place we just don't use effectively. And so if you want to be a better Samaritan, I still think you've got to get some dirt under your fingernails at some point. But you can help our church be a good Samaritan by your giving. I can assure you the money will be well spent and it will go to people in need. The point is this. There's one thing we must all do. One thing we must all do. And it was the very thing that the lawyer could not. The lawyer was so intent on justifying his own sense of goodness that he missed out on God's definition of goodness. And isn't there a blessing that comes from knowing that you have been obedient? It's awesome! Not not that it's me, but that God has enabled me to be a tool. That's a great thing. And so what we must do is repent for ways that we have substituted our apathetic definition of compassion for God's. The lawyer couldn't do it because he wanted to justify himself. And I pray that everyone here knows that their only justification comes through what our Savior, the ultimate Good Samaritan, who didn't just spend his wealth, gave up his life that we might be forgiven, that we might repent and acknowledge our sinfulness and our selfishness and say, God, use me. That's a good word from a story we've all heard before that we need to test ourselves to see if we're living out our faith the way that God would have us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. And we pray from this old story that you help us to see new truth, that you, by your Spirit, even at this moment, are bringing new conviction. Lord, if we have substituted our cheap definition of compassion for yours, Lord, help us to repent. Help our church to be a good Samaritan church. Lord, I I, I pray that as you have blessed us individually, that those blessings will flow into our church and out of our church, that we might be able to be uh, the the church in Rock Hill that is most well-known for your glory for helping people in need. Lord, I I don't want us to just become a social agency. I want us to be a place that is known like Mary, who is not so obsessed with our serving that we forget to sit and worship at your feet. So Lord, this morning, if we've got some busy bodies that have been so busy with religious stuff that they've just not been honest about where they're at spiritually, this is the opportunity for them to respond. This is the opportunity for us to repent and to seek your face. We pray that you help us in Jesus' name.